and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review Books. My name is Eric Newman, and I am the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB. I am joined in the studio today by Medea Ocher, the Managing Editor of LARB. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. So today we have a conversation with Liska Jacobs, author of the debut novel, Catalina, about that little island just off the coast of Santa Monica for me, but Los Angeles for everybody else. So I loved this interview because I love reading any story about Catalina. It has like a very weird history. I've actually written travel guides to Catalina. Not that we need to get into that. But there is actually a few places that I enjoy more just for their weirdness and remoteness slash not remoteness like Catalina. Can I ask you what you wrote in your travel guide? To Catalina? Oh, it was a review of the many, many restaurants on the island. There are actually not many. You know, I've actually written Travel Guide to Catalina, and one of my favorite ways, one of my favorite things about the island is that you can navigate it entirely by electric bicycle, which means that you can go up and down these like very, very large inclines or very steep inclines without actually having to use your feet. It feels like you are in Monte Carlo. It feels very Italian. I always have this kind of talented Mr. Ripley fantasy whenever I'm there. So it's always a great time. Have you ever been to Catalina? I have, but as a person who doesn't know how to ride a bicycle, I felt out of place. And I was stuck on my feet while everybody else was apparently biking around. Oh, Dea, you have to go to Brown's Bicycles. You can get an electric bicycle for the entire day. I don't know what that is. Um, And I don't think I'd be able to ride an electric bicycle since I can't ride just a regular one. You've never ridden a Vespa? No. Oh, okay. I can walk. (laughs) I really love talking to Liska about Catalina, which is also the title of her debut novel. It's a fascinating story that kind of chronicles a young woman's descent into effectively a kind of breakdown, right? So she's had a break in her life, and then it's just an entire catalog of how she spirals out of control, which is like any great soap opera or reality show, just a gas to watch, and it was great to read about. It was a really fun read, and it felt like sort of a Brett Easton Ellis-like book, but from the point of view of a woman, which is mm, long yeah, overdue yeah. and deserved. Yeah, why don't we have Brett Easton Ellis-style female novelists? Well, now we do. Now we do. And now to our conversation with Liska Jacobs. We're excited to have in the studio with us today Liska Jacobs. Liska Jacobs is a Los Angeles-based novelist who received her MFA from the University of California, Riverside in 2015. Her essays and short fiction have appeared in The Rumpus, The LA Review of Books, Literary Hub, The Millions, and The Hairpin. Her first novel, Catalina, was published in November by MCD by FSG Originals. Welcome to the show, Liska. Thank you. So just so that we can get started, I mean, I know we're going to talk a lot about Catalina itself, but (laughs) can you give us um, a brief sketch of the plot of the novel? Oh, I'll give you my elevator pitch, which I like to do a lot when I was... Yes, please. It's about a mid-30s woman who loses her job at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Mm -hmm. She comes back to Los Angeles and regroups with an old group of friends, including an ex-husband. And they go on a sailing trip to Catalina where there's lots of drugs and sex and alcohol and everything spins out of control. (laughs) Sold, right? Very succinct, yeah. And then ding, the elevator doors open. (laughs) Sold. Okay, so there's a couple of different ways into the novel that Mm -hmm. I want to talk about. One of them is... 
to kind of sketch this world that Elsa, who is the 30-something hot mess, I guess we could say. <laughs> yeah. The world that she circulates in. Because one of the things that I was thinking as I was reading is I was like, oh my God, this is like an entire cast of Daisy and Tom Buchanan. <laughs> I'm so glad you said that. <laughs> right? Okay. So I should say it's a, obviously in that reference too, there is a very privileged world. They're mm-hmm. disaffected. Yeah. I mean, it's somewhere between like Great Gatsby and like Brett Easton Ellis, mm-hmm. right? This yeah, kind yeah, of like yeah. just they're longing for stimulation and they feel nothing yes, anymore. Yes. I think they're all suffering from ennui, I think. Middle class ennui, right? Because they all want more, but they have plenty Okay. Kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know. So she comes from, you know, an art world also, which is a completely different world than Charlie and her friends are sort of living in. They're living in their Southern California life where one's a homeowner and one of them has a sailboat, you know. So that's mm. a certain kind of class right there. But Elsa herself is in love with the museum world, I think, which is a different kind of class altogether. It's even more removed from everything else because it's very specialized. Right, and it's endless mm-hmm. nights of galas and mm-hmm. openings. Oh, yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes glitzy. her feel very special and very yeah. important and better than her friends, I think. As, oh, as I hadn't actually thought about it that way. That's true. Yeah. In a sense, she has fallen by having to then reassociate with these friends. I that think that's had. how she thinks about it. I okay. think, well, I think for Elsa, she has a lot of different personalities, or I think everyone who knows her needs something different from her. And okay. so she's constantly trying to negotiate that. I think, throughout the book. And tear it down, really. That's really what she's doing. She's just going through the whole novel, just saying, I won't be this person for you. And then suffers the consequences of that. There's an interesting, and this isn't giving away too much, because this is basically the raison d'etre of her Uh movement out to Los Angeles and the California Mm -hmm. in general. But she had a falling out with, she was sleeping with her boss Mm -hmm. at MoMA, Mm -hmm. right? And then that didn't work out so well. There's a great scene that you give us of them in front of the HR director, which oh, yeah. I was like, anybody that's ever been in like corporate culture in New York is like, <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying that I've been in that particular situation, <laughs> but that rang very true of this like HR person trying to mediate this like yeah, messy yeah. human relationship yes. between two employees. Yes. This is based on current things that are happening, obviously. In many ways, her boss was a predator. Yes. Right. Although and, I don't think she thinks that in the beginning. Right. I think, yeah. It's something yeah. she comes to later. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. But so I'm wondering in some ways, not that this novel is obviously tied to some kind of hot news story right yes, now, but yeah. what do you think about Elsa's relationship in that kind of dynamic of power and charisma? Mm. And obviously it's like we're thinking about this against the backdrop of what's happened with Harvey Weinstein. Yes. Yeah. It's yeah. not, I should tell yes. readers it's not as violent as that. Yes. And it's yes, not as yes. clearly transactional, yeah, yeah. but mm-hmm. that's one mm-hmm. of the valences that's there. Yeah. I, well, and also Elsa uses her body as a type of currency. Right. Mm. But I think she thinks because she does that, she has some sort of control. Like she is not prey. And I think he's definitely a predator, but I think for Elsa, she's thinking he isn't, that way in the beginning i start off the book with her saying that she gets a new cell phone right it's like a gucci Mm -hmm. alligator case and she likes the idea of a decorative predator and i think she's going through the book the whole time thinking she's actually the person on the prowl right she's the Mm. predator and doesn't really realize she's prey until the very end of the book i don't want to give the ending away but i think that's sort of her realization is that 
It doesn't matter if you're a woman who has control of her body and is in control of her narrative, because that's what she's doing the whole time. She's like, I'll do drugs if I want to do drugs. I'll drink if I want to drink. I'll sleep with whoever I want to sleep. But that doesn't necessarily make you not prey, I think, is what she comes to realize. So it is the illusion that she's not actually being though we should say she does take kind of predatory relationships with i'm thinking particularly of the hotel bellboy oh yeah 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 she says yeah definitely because i think part of her really is acting out right she wants to be in control of something she might even think you know has a suspicion that she's been used i mean she's been fired so i think when she sees rex and she thinks God, it would feel so good, goddamn good to break something. That's mm, really her that, yeah. wanting to be in control. But that's the sort of myth. I don't really believe, this will probably get me in trouble, but I don't, I don't really believe women, even strong women, are able to negotiate power. They're never the ones that are actually in control, mm. which is mm. disappointing. And what do you think prevents women in situations like that from being in control? Like, what do you think is the well? Is you the know, other I, power. I'm glad you pointed out the thing about Daisy Buchanan and all that because yeah. one of the th- inspirations for Elsa was female characters like Daisy and also Lady Brett in The Sun Also Rises, where oh, sure. mm-hmm. yeah. you know they're very much the root cause for the protagonist, the male protagonist, whether they're the muse or the villain. So I really wanted Elsa to sort of explore being that person mm-hmm. right what it would be like to be her because it must have been an, it must be exhausting to be lady brett right with jake always pining yeah. after her right yeah. yes. um <laughs> totally exhausting. right right so i really wanted elsa to come from that world but also i thought there must be a lot of rage from being that person right from always being objectified mm. from the male gaze but i thought maybe a, there could be a happy ending actually because I wanted to believe that she could act out and be angry and maybe and find her way right? and be something. a liberation. Sure. And what I realized was every which way I pushed the characters, society just doesn't reward an angry woman. It's funny, a lot of the reactions to the book have been that she's an unlikable narrator. I kind of feel that you maybe wouldn't get that reaction if she was a male character, which is... That's interesting. We would. You're probably right that we would tend to focus on the glory of the conquest or uh-huh. something like yeah, that. Yeah, of course. Yeah, than... yeah, yeah. One of, one of the reviews pointed out that she had casual sex, and I was like, is that still something we point out? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is that still a thing? Yeah. Casual sex yeah. is still right. something we talk about. <laughs> and also it seems like maybe if, perhaps if she were a man, it would fall potentially a little bit more into a sort of nostalgic of throwback to that of kind course. of narrative. Yes, where, yeah, yes. Oh, wasn't that a, a time period when we told these really yeah, s- interesting, yeah. strong stories about definitely, definitely, and, and, and the suffering of men? And, yes, yeah. yeah. I mean, she comes from a long line of long line of characters that are sort of on the edge, you know. Mm-hmm. So Joan Didion's Mariah Wythe and Sylvia Plath's Esther Greenwood, you know, or actually a Voyage big, in the Dark, Voyage Jean in the Dark. Yeah. Jean yeah. Reese is Jean my Reese. actually that's a huge I think inspiration for this book was Good Morning Midnight, um, oh, and that was a hundred okay. years ago. Yeah, so I really thought okay. Elsa can be like Sasha and sort of be nihilistic and angry and drunk. And maybe, though, she doesn't have to end up with the wrong guy. And there can be a sort of liberating moment. And I realized, no, nothing's really changed in 100 years. (laughs) It was such a disappointing realization. (laughs) That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I kept rewriting it. I was like, no, she's going off into the sunset. It's going to be great. She's going back to Bakersfield. And then I realized, no, 
That can't possibly be what happens. Actually, a, a couple of weeks ago, I recommended a book called Difficult Women by this guy, David Plant. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen that book? It was just I re-released, have, yeah. yeah. And this feeling that the reason why it was so roundly criticized is that the women in it were not very likable. But that, to me, when I read it, didn't seem like a problem necessarily. Mm-hmm. It seemed like they were short. At times they were very, very difficult, but that that was part of the characters that he was, yeah, well, that he was spending time with. And I think it's important when, when you have difficult characters or unlikable characters, I think all that means is that I'm trying to start a dialogue, right? I'm trying to trigger mm-hmm. an insight, a sort of dialogue about what it means to be and feel objectified or part of the male gaze, right? So like to have a reaction like that, I think is good because it's making people feel things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's unfortunate though, that as soon as you identify it as unlikable female narrator, you can just be like, okay, next, you know, it just sort of feels like, oh, you put it in a box. All right, great. So that's kind of disappointing. You know, and as you're saying that, as both of you were talking about this, I'm thinking about how there are many, many unlikable men who we totally revere Oh, oh sure. Steve Jobs is a perfect example yes. of somebody who we know how horrible they were to oh, work yeah. with. Yeah. And yet we're like, amazing genius. Amazing genius. Like, it's you allowed. Know. Yeah. You know, it's yeah, allowed. Definitely. Exactly. But if there's the women that you're talking about from this book, it's like, oh, well, that's instantly seen as yeah, a negative that definitely. then has to be recuperated in some way. Yeah. Women definitely have to negotiate, I think, that line of being a bitch or a whore or a Madonna. Right, sort of right, right. Mm-hmm. the virgin vamp dualism. For, yes, thing, definitely, yeah. definitely. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. And now it's time for this week's book recommendation. We have Liska Jacobs in the studio with us to give us a book recommendation. Liska, what book will you be recommending? I'm going to recommend Chris Krause's Video Green. I'm still in the middle of reading it, but it is sort of this fascinating series of essays that she wrote while working here in Los Angeles. And it really tackles the art scene here in the early 90s. And we were talking before about sort of how Los Angeles is changing and becoming this really international city. And I think it's really fascinating to read her book about what was happening in the 90s. And you can sort of see how it's changed and maybe what the future might look like. And what's your sense about how it's changed since the 90s and now? We definitely have more museums and more galleries. (laughs) Right. And there's more even DIY spaces than there were, I think, in the 90s. And I think one of the things that's really interesting is there seems to be sort of cross-platforms happening, right? So when I was doing Dum Dum Zine, we would always do a different type of issue every single time. So we'd do one that was like a broadside or we'd do a tape or something, something Mm -hmm. where it wasn't just writing, right? So there's all these different art forms are sort of speaking to each other, right? Look at LARB. You guys have a radio show. There's just all cross-platforms. I think the Internet's really had a lot to do with that, but I think that's one of the most fascinating things. Yeah. Chris Krauss is really having a moment right now. I know. <laughs> are you a fan of her other work? I was just recently turned on to her, so... She's great. Yeah. I feel like I've tried to claim ownership of, of her, her? <laughs> her work for a long time, and it's it seems to be not so, mine, have personally. Have you read Video Green? I actually haven't read Video Green, but... Um, it's fascinating. I really like her approach of 
that she can't really speak about art without talking about herself. Right? Yes. So she's very honest about herself, which that's the whole thing about literature that I love, right? There's this very thin line between fiction and nonfiction and reality, and and she definitely plays into that. She does. <laughs> okay, Liska, will you tell us the title of the book again and the author? Chris Krause's Video Green. Thank you so much. You're welcome. We've been speaking with Liska Jacobs, author of Catalina. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Liska Jacobs about her debut novel, Catalina. So, as Eric mentioned earlier, we are in the midst of a news cycle Mm -hmm. that is full of news about Weinstein's misbehavior is a euphemism, but his crimes, essentially, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. is maybe how one would put it. But a broader discussion of this kind of dynamic that is being acted out mm-hmm. in the world every single day. Is there a way in which you are thinking about this moment? I mean, it sounds like you don't feel very hopeful that the story has not brought you to a place where you think, oh, you know, we are in the midst of a changing narrative. We are in a way in some way able to take control of Mm -hmm. what that story will look like Mm -hmm. does it feel to you that in fact this is nothing right that this is this is just a measure of how things you know have been and will be I think when you start having the dialogue and the conversation that's the most important part Mm -hmm. you know the whole hashtag me too campaign Mm. was that was so sad to wake up in the morning and just see my Facebook feed just me too me too me too me too and yes there's a sort of sadness and a mourning you have to do, but that's the reality. Mm-hmm. I mean, I really wanted this book to feel real. And that doesn't mean that I feel that there's no hope. It just means now, hopefully, maybe we can talk about it and we can, and mm. change can come from that, right? What, same yeah. with the Me Too. You know, like we're all sad, but now what do we Let's what do, do, we something do something about it, right? Yeah. 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 So to change gears a little bit, can we talk about Catalina itself, which obviously mm. is um, plays a role in the novel. It is not only the title, but it's also the kind of destination where a lot of all this messiness gets worked out. Yes. I've been to Catalina a number of times. I've actually written, tra- so this was particularly fun for me, I think, because I've written travel guides to Catalina. Oh, really? and like, Yeah, so all the places that you're mentioning, especially the ones that you're shady about, that it's like, oh, nobody goes there. That place is trash, you know, or like, this is the best restaurant on the island. You know, and we should also say it's an island that is so tiny. It's very, very, very tiny. There's yeah. two ports of entry mm-hmm. and everything really kind of does matter about which port you end up going into. Yeah, yeah. But can you just talk to us a little bit about what Catalina means? Yeah. in the novel and yeah. kind of what you find interesting about that place. Well, I grew up here. Oh, okay. And oh, you're, you're local, an Angelino kid. Yes, okay. Angelino kid. And my parents grew up here and their parents grew up here. Catalina was a different place for all of us, right? Mm, I think my, my parents' parents used to go there for like wild jazz weekends and stuff like that. Oh, when it was like mm, a real movie star. Real movie like star getaway, place, yeah. right? So it has this bizarre history. Plus it's so close, right? It's right there. We can see it on a clear day. Yeah, yeah. And when you're on it, you can look at Los Angeles. You have this weird sort of outer body experience when you're there yeah. to, to look back, to know it's that close. But it's sort of an ordeal to even get to. And then the island itself is so bizarre to me because it, it was for a long time owned by mostly the Wrigley's, right? Yes. And it was yeah. like a tourist destination. Yeah. And now it's, I think, 
there's a population that lives there year-round. But there's this duality on that island that is so weird to me, right? You have two harbors, Mm -hmm. which is gorgeous and very wild almost. There's definitely no golf carts there. No. You know, there's one little school, one bar, one restaurant. You can have the bison come down from the hills, right? That's right, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, in the middle. We camp there. And then in the morning, there's like little fox prints, Catalina fox prints (laughs) on all of our gear. It's very beautiful. And it kind of gives you an idea of what, I guess, Southern California, where we live, might have looked like. Sure, Mm -hmm. sure. Right? So you get this nice sort of outer... It's very California in that way, right? Yeah. California is this beautiful place where we have Griffith Park and the Santa Monica Mountains right right there. But then you go over to Avalon. Avalon, exactly. (laughs) And it's sort of like this Hollywood city version where everything's very catered towards, you know, capitalism, consumerism. Yeah. And the... Beach it's a vibe, party town. Right? It's a I party mean, town. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I really thought that was important for the book to have that sort of duality of California. Because with Elsa especially, that's part of what's going on within her, right? She's yeah. really trying to decide who she is. She's having an identity crisis. So I wanted there to be pressure on both those. It always strikes me every time that I'm on Catalina and my typical way of getting around Catalina is not quite the golf cart, but I do get the electric bike so that you can power yourself up those mountains. It often strikes me how it feels both what you were saying mm-hmm. and Two Harbors is more that way about it. it looks like kind of classic California. Yeah. Yeah. But the rest of it, Avalon always strikes me as like Monte Carlo or it Definitely. has this Definitely. kind of like Malfi Coast feel yeah, and yeah. you feel like you're in... My fantasy when I'm there is always like it's uh, talented Mr. Ripley. That's where you feel, you know, where you're just kind of like you want a long scarf while you're like coming down the mountain, you yeah, know, going well, 35 full is, miles an there hour. There is that tension there also, right? There's a little bit of eeriness to it, right? Yeah, I mean, and it's romantic though. That's uh-huh. what I think I'm trying to get at. Yeah, yeah, it has yes. this kind of European old world romance, yes, definitely. but that is also kind of seedy in weird ways mm-hmm. and has a checkered like movie history past mm-hmm. and yeah, all yeah, that yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. stuff. It's a it's a wild and that it's so close too. Yeah. One of the reasons I said it there too was I thought I've always wanted to write. What I like to read is sort of travel narratives, you know, mm-hmm. a fun mm-hmm. adventure. And I also really like when I characters get stuck together. I think that just just tension comes from that, right? So I wanted there to be a boat. And I thought, well, then where do mm, they sail? Yeah. They have to go to right. Catalina. Yeah, that is great. And the the other Mercator points on the map for this novel are there's so there's Catalina, but also the other side of that is Los Angeles. There's her mother in Bakersfield mm-hmm. and then New York. I mean, mm-hmm. how do you understand? Bakersfield drops out pretty early. So mm-hmm. it's like, how do you see the triangulation yeah. between New York, Los Angeles and and uh, Catalina? This probably comes from being raised here, probably. OK, Um being sort of old LA stock it's not even that old because we're very a new city but I think for Elsa Bakersfield is sort of bottom rung right like right. that's it's it's like a deserty type area well it's not it's where they have all crops and stuff but for her it's definitely her, like yeah. she thinks if I go from that to Los Angeles that's I've climbed the ladder a little a little bit and but New York is sort of the pinnacle for her and I think she's been raised to think that that New York City is, if you can go there and sort of be successful, um, she'll, that's something that she really needs. And that she has to tumble backwards, I think, is really hard for her. But part of the thing that I wanted you know, to have it be in Los Angeles was, I think Robbie says at one point that this is sort of the end of Manifest Destiny right mm-hmm. here, along right. here, right? That if the American dream, I mean, we're discounting Hawaii, but like 
if the American dream can't happen here, where where does it go from here? Right. Which is also why all the characters are, are so miserable. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so that's that was really how I saw the sort of triangle of that. It's so interesting because I was I was thinking too when I was reading it, both what you were saying about their middle class on Wii, which I would actually describe as a upper middle class. Upper middle, yeah, for sure. So that also seems particularly present. Um, in the sense that I've noticed that there's a lot of, you know, kind of of the circles that I float around, you know, people that have achieved all of these particular kind of markers. The upper middle class ennui that the characters face, I mean, is that also about a desire for stimulation and achievement in a contemporary culture where those things don't seem as rewarding as we maybe once believed that they were? Oh, definitely. Okay. I think that's exactly exactly right. Also, I think part of it is their age. I think they're you, all mid thirties. They're all mid thirties, so they're all working towards certain goals. And at this point, most of them have achieved them, or if not, decided. You know what? I want a different goal now because that one's unattainable. Okay. And I think there's some sort of mourning that happens with that, right? Where you reach a goal and then you're like, oh my God, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Mm-hmm. I have the house. This is Charlie, right? Right. I have a job. Mm-hmm. My husband's doing really well. We have a lot of friends, but what do I, what else can be mine, right? Yeah. Um, and how do you move forward with that? Because they still have the rest of their lives. Right. 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 Um, something that I was wondering, you just mentioned, um, you said that part of the triangulation that you sort of explored in this novel is how you were raised. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? What, how were you raised to mm. think of the of this of the relationship between LA and, and, New, and New York, York or, and potentially some place like Catalina, which yeah. seems to also push Manifest Destiny a tiny, a tiny bit, bit, right? More, like maybe right? like an like, inch. Yeah, that's the sad yeah. part, right? Yeah. Like we have like a fingernail <laughs> out there that we right. can just go a little bit further. Yeah. Well, I think. A lot of pe- a lot of people in Los Angeles think New York City is like that's where mm. all the mm-hmm. industry is. That's where a lot of publishing was. At least growing up, it's changed a lot now because we did- I didn't have the internet growing up. We didn't even have cell phones, so it's a much smaller country now. It almost feels like there's just two coasts and mm. a whole lot yeah. in the middle. But there's a part in the book where um, they talk about. Uh, the publishing industry in LA, yeah. uh-huh. and yeah. and um, I think one of the characters, oh, yeah. yeah, says, "Oh, we don't even have we have the LA Times, sure, we don't, we don't have anything like the New Yorker." And I was like, "Oh, what about us?" I, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. I, well, yeah. I, but I think a lot of a lot of Angelinos, native and even even people who have just moved here, mm-hmm. are, like to discount us as as a culture, as a city. So the, a lot of the opinions in the book aren't, aren't necessarily mine. Like, I'm very much like, Angelino's for the win. But um, I think there, for Elsa, she has to really learn where she's from. Part of the, a lot of right. the book, too, is like, can you go home? Right. right. And what, what is your home, really? Um, and with me growing up here, we moved around a lot. So, like, I, was, I lived in Los Angeles, and then we moved out to Thousand Oaks, which is near Simi Valley, which is probably yeah. where the Bakersfield Park comes in. Right, right, and then right. I, and then I actually tried to go to uh, Northeastern University for a couple terms, survived two blizzards, and I was like, what are you people doing here? There's a whole sunny coast. <laughs> it's like it 90 degrees there. It doesn't have to be there. this way. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. 
So that's my own sort of personal like ricocheting back and forth. Across Do you think the coast? that dynamic yeah. is changing though? I don't know if this is because I've just been in Los Angeles for the last seven years, but it definitely feels like my husband and I talk all the time about how it feels like things are actually happening and oh, like yeah. cresting in Los Angeles in a way that we do not feel because we live in Dea's also grew up in New York. You know, she served her time there. And, you know, <laughs> we were there for 10 years. It, but it, it feels like things are not quite happening or things are in a kind of like stasis in New York I in agree. a way that here things feel like they're happening and breaking. I mean, is that your experience? I, I definitely, definitely. I mean, my okay. background is I was a big zinester before mm, yeah. I, I, okay. I actually started publishing in other places and stuff. And so we were always under the guise of, well, if it's not happening here, let's make it happen. Yeah. You know, um, let's do it ourselves. And there's a huge, I think, sort of DIY movement in Los Angeles. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and there, I'm sure it's in New York, too. But here it just seems like uh, there's some sort of energy or excitement right now, especially yeah. because we keep have we're in such a boom um, now, I mean, when I started writing this, this was during a, uh, at the end of a recession, so it was a completely different Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. But it, you have a lot more people coming here. One of the weirdest things is, I think, going to a shop here in downtown, knowing there's one in New York City also. Like, you didn't really have a whole lot of that, you know? <laughs> right. And now yeah. there's there's a lot of chefs come here. They have sure. restaurants in oh, both yeah. and yeah. galleries. Hauser and Worth came over here, and then the Broad opened yeah. uh, before that. But it's been a very, I think, rich... It's becoming like this, I think, very energetic place. Has been for a while, but it's definitely becoming stronger. And do you feel settled here now? I've lived in my adult life across the entire city. So I don't know where in the city I feel the most at home, Mm. but I can't really imagine ever leaving. I tried. I tried a couple different times, but it just feels like home to me. So as we just uh, kind of wrap up, what are you working on next? This book has just come out, <laughs> yeah, it's literally. Just out. So yeah, yeah. Um, it's not that you need to jump on something immediately. But do you have any other stuff in the works? I actually turned in a first draft of my second book. <laughs> oh, congratulations. <laughs> congratulations! Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I joked when I finished Catalina that if I ever had more money to do a book somewhere other than just off the coast of mm-hmm. Los Angeles, because you know, sixty dollars to get over there, right? I would pick somewhere really exotic. And <laughs> so my second book takes place in Rome and Puglia. <laughs> Oh, okay. Uh, still, I can see the connection, though, to, thank you. to Catalina. Right? Yeah. Okay, thank I, you. Yes. So I went and did some research. Very important, serious research happened this summer. It sounds terrible. Yeah, I know. I'm so it's sorry a, it's a hard to do that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, it has been a pleasure speaking with you, Lisa. Oh, thank, thank you so much, you so much for joining for having us. Me. Thank you for coming. We've been speaking with Lisa Jacobs, author of Catalina. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Lyra Smith. Our researcher is Chloe Chap. Production assistance is provided by William Broaden, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Our interns, Samson Amore, Natasha Boyd, and Joaquin Perez. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful recording studios in the heart of Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm Eric Newman. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. (laughs) 